This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. The scripture reading for this morning is Colossians 2, verses 6 through 7. It can be found on page 984 in the Black Bible. Colossians 2, starting in verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Good morning, everyone. Hey, my name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here. And it's really, really good to be with you all this morning. Pastors, pastors and, and, uh, and seminary professors have long said, I'm not the first one to say this or the last one to say this, have long said that when you see a, a therefore in the Bible, you should ask, what's the therefore there for? And I'm no different. I'm in the line of pastors that ask those kinds of questions and teachers that believe that the Bible is always relevant and we would always do well to believe it more deeply, understand it more fully, and apply it more persistently as opposed to other theories about Christianity that desire to kind of adjust or edit or uh, make the scriptures fit our kind of modern sensibilities or modern discoveries. I was reading an article just this week where a dean of a Christian liberal arts college claimed that, quote, the old ways of of constructing certain doctrines no longer land in the world. If not reimagined, they may promote harm, irrelevance, or both, end quote. But but thrusting these kinds of modern sensibilities into biblical categories is deluding in just the way that the apostle talks about these Colossian Christians being deluded or don't let anybody delude you. The therefore is there for a reason, for a reason. I know that sounds really simple, but we live in a day when the proposition of basic understanding is being offered up, that that idea that the therefore would even be there to build an argument to tell you how to live is actually up for grabs and up for debate, even in mainstream circles. Does the Bible demand that we change or do we demand that the Bible be reshaped and reformed and fit our modern society? And in the text today, our author is building an argument. He's constructing something, one brick at a time, and each brick is on top of the other one. It's there for a reason. And noticing that is essential for Christian growth and maturity. So we're turning a corner in this letter, and the apostle sums up the direction that he plans to go in one sentence. Just as you have received Christ, so walk in him. And Paul's described who that Christ is at length. He's shown us that he's the image of God. He's uncovered that it's Christ. In Christ is all the wisdom and all knowledge. And the apostle has unraveled a mystery, unpacked the weight and the sturdiness of Christ Jesus the Lord. So much has been asserted about Christ up to this point that 
that it's both natural that we would and it follows that we must remain in him and go nowhere else for a foundation. All practical instruction is house building and that must have a pure and immovable foundation that is Christ Jesus the Lord. That's why we're in this letter at all. Because in many ways in this church, we're building here. We're rebuilding some things that have been broken down. We're remodeling some areas of neglect or otherwise disrepair in the spiritual structure of this church. Paul elsewhere compares the church to a building and rebuilding shows up throughout the scriptures as a symbol for renewal and reformation within the people of God. And we want It's probably better to say we refuse not to build on the only firm foundation that is Christ Jesus the Lord. So while I don't want the preeminence of Christ to begin to sound like white noise for us, I do want us to hear it a lot over the next five months. Let me, let me give a simple, uh, funny illustration that kind of shows you some of my own pedagogy when it comes to thinking about teaching. When I was, when I was in high school, yeah, high school, I was probably like 15 or 16 years old, I played soccer. And I told the first service that I, it was more like I participated in soccer than played. Uh, I was there. I was on the field. Um, but uh, at, the end, or at the end of some season, we were getting ready to go on like a yearly tournament. So it's a situation where it's like, hey, we're going to be gone for three or four days. Everything you bring on the list that has to go has to go. Like you can't forget anything or someone's going to Walmart or someone's, you know, uh, scrambling to solve, solve problems. And my coach was also a teacher. He went on to coach college soccer. He was a great guy, godly man. And the way he, one of the things he would do for us as young high school students is he would repeat things often. And I remember right before this soccer tournament, he looked at all of us and we're we're on one knee and we're listening and he looks at all of us and he goes, I don't remember what it was, but it was an essential ingredient. He goes, don't forget your cleats. Don't forget your cleats. Don't forget your cleats. And in that moment, I had a friend next to me who even, who was even less gifted at participating in soccer than I was. (laughs) And he says, oh, I'm so glad you said that three times because I only just now heard you. (laughs) So I repeat things a lot. But I think it helps things sink in if we don't let it become white noise. In this church, in many ways, we're doing the slow and steady work that's much like the work involved in starting a school. When you start a school, you don't start with grades K through 12. You don't have all the grades in the beginning. And some grades you won't have for many, many years. But you can be diligent. You can be faithful with what's in front of you. And we have a burden to be faithful with what's in front of us. And we pray that as we're faithful with little, that God might... uh, God might be kind to us and give us more. So we're spending a long time on foundations here. And that's what the Colossians needed. And that's what what the book of Colossians helps us do during this season. It's what it provides for us. A lot of foundational work, a lot of revisiting and inspecting of groundwork, a lot of reexamining that the foundation might be, of the foundation that might be neglected or crumbling or cracked or crooked like G.K. Beale writes in his commentary on the Colossians, on the, book of the, uh, on the book of Colossians, he says, quote, 
this emphasis on Christ, this emphasis on Christ is set in antithesis to the non-Christ-centered false teaching. And our emphasis on Christ in this place is always intentionally set against and in antithesis to any non-Christ-centered teaching about how to live, how to love one another, how to do relationships, how to exist and be in the world, how to exist within your family, how to exist within this spiritual family. That's why we're in the book of Colossians, and that's why I'm not going to get tired of hammering the preeminence of Christ in every move, in every decision, in every shift, in everything that we do. So would you all bow your heads with me and pray uh, with me before we, or as we jump into, as we jump into the text today. (coughs) Excuse me. Heavenly Father, I ask, first of all, for the fathers in this room, would you deepen the impact of the reality that you're a father? You chose to reveal yourself to the world as a father, as a father. Would you deepen that in our chests this morning? And would we feel the weight of that? And would we long to demonstrate the, the fatherness of God to our families and our children and our communities and our workplace. Would you deepen that for the fathers in this room? I ask, Spirit of God, would you open up the word to us this morning? Would you illuminate the word to us this morning? Would we have aha kind of moments in our heart and soul this morning? Would you break in and help the weary? Would you break in and convict the proud or the arrogant? Would you wake up the sleepy, Holy Spirit, please, this morning? Would you do all of those things to magnify Christ, to magnify Christ, his goodness and strength and power and preeminence in every aspect of our lives? Would you wake us up? Would you do all of this in Jesus' name? Amen. The first thing I want to ask this morning is going to be, have you received Christ the Lord? I don't think there's a better place to start because the rest of the argument hinges on that reality. The logical structure of our text is basic. It's, as you have received him, so walk in him. So walk in him. Walk in him like you received him. Which begs the question before we move forward, how have you received him? How have you received Christ Jesus the Lord? And I want to mention as we begin, four inadequate ways to receive Christ. The movements today are, I'm going to go through those four inadequate ways to receive him. Then I'm going to talk about what it looks like to be rooted, what it looks like to be built up, and what it looks like to live a life abounding with thanksgiving. First, the first inadequate way to receive Jesus is as a merely religious reception. This is the reception of Jesus in a way that makes you proud and conceited. This is the person who has the language of Jesus in their lives, but for the wrong reasons. This person wants to know the expectations, 
Not because they know they can't ever do it and that they're sick and they need the great physician. They want to know the expectation so that they can prove that they can do it. They can prove to everybody else that they're good enough and they deserve whatever Jesus does for them. Ultimately, so that they can be praised by other people. This is the religious reception of Jesus that misses the spirit of what Jesus came to do and uses Jesus to prop ourselves up instead of glorifying him. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his followers that when they pray, he says, don't do it to be seen by others. And don't go on and on and on and heap up a bunch of empty words like the Gentiles do. And then he also says, when you fast, don't, don't make a scene of it. Don't make a deal about it. Because, because the Pharisees do, and they do it to be praised, to be seen. A religious reception of Jesus is a reception that isn't, that, that, that's an act, or what I like to say, it's kind of put on for the audience around you. This type of receiving Jesus doesn't save you. It does not attach your life to Christ. This type of receiving Christ won't help you walk in him. And if you're in this boat, receiving Jesus this way is inadequate. It isn't enough. Number two, receiving Jesus is merely a moral teacher. This isn't good enough either. Jesus isn't one of many other moral and pious examples that we can add to our own eclectic kind of amalgam of what we believe a good person should be. You can't take a little from Aristotle and a little from New Age philosophy and a little from Oprah and a little from your favorite Instagram mom or your favorite podcaster, and then a little from Jesus and sprinkle that in and make your own mosaic of what you believe a good person should act like. And then receive Jesus that way. He actually came to divide. Jesus came to divide, and one of the things he divides himself from is all other gods, all other personalities or influencers or any other religion or religious explanation about the world. You and I, you are, you and I are, are in church on Sunday, so most of us wouldn't admit or say it that way. We wouldn't admit that we look at Jesus that way, but we may still tend in our lives to receive certain things other than Jesus and then put our deepest trust in those things or find our deepest sense of identity in those things rather than Jesus. Modernism and consumerism is rampant in the places that we live and Jesus can just as easily become an add-on to that religious conviction he can become an add-on or a gold star or a hobby or our sidekick or some sort of symbol of our own piety. And that makes Jesus, that makes receiving Jesus about us instead of about him. And if we receive him that way, we'll balk and bristle at the commands of scripture when they don't line up with our own program and our own platform. The temptation that all of us face when we read the Bible, when we read the Word of God, is to insert some sort of but at the end of whatever requirement it offers us. We read the scriptures and we say, yeah, yeah, yeah I get it, Jesus, but you, you don't understand my situation. We read the Bible and we say, right, 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 yeah, 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 love your enemies, but surely you're not talking about my enemies, 
We read forgive 70 times seven, but definitely not when somebody does that. No one would forgive that. That's a temptation to see the teachings of Scripture and the teachings of the Bible as optional. And doing that's not receiving Christ the way we need to receive him. A third inadequate way to receive Jesus is to receive him as merely your endorsement or your affirmer or your cheer squad. Jesus doesn't mince words in the New Testament. He talks about hell and about money. What's funny is that means your money and that means my money. That means my wallet. He talks about those things way more than he talks about cozy, fuzzy things that that make us feel good about ourselves. He actually promises not to endorse you, but to transform you. He, He promises not to promote you, but to hand you a cross to bear. He promises that he'll never leave you, and then he lets you know that if the world hates you, that is par for the course, because it hated him first. Following Christ, receiving Christ here means being completely receptive and completely transformed and completely submitted to God. Paul Tripp in his book, How People Change, says it this way. Is Jesus my redeemer or is Jesus my therapist? If he's my therapist, then he meets my needs as I define them. But if he's my redeemer, he defines my true needs and addresses them in ways that are far more glorious than I could have ever anticipated. Christ isn't our booster or our promoter. His main job is not to confirm all the things that we already think about ourselves or about how the world works or about who God is. He breaks into our lives and takes over and nothing's off limits for him. We must receive Christ as the one who defines our needs, not the other way around. Christ must define our sin, define our weakness, define our paths to healing and wholeness. He defines all of it. As you received him, now walk in him. If how you received him is less than the complete authoritative definer of you and all your thoughts and all your feelings and all your actions and all your attitudes, then your reception of him is too limited. Klein Snodgrass says it this way, what a person gives ultimate defining force is the key identity question for that person. And for the Christian, only Christ is given ultimate defining force. Receiving Christ means he has the authority to define and direct all of you. All of you. All your thoughts, all your feelings, all your behaviors. The fourth and final kind of inadequate way to receive Christ is represented in the phrase, ask quote unquote, ask Jesus into your heart. Now, that's definitely not a hill I'm trying to die on at all. I'm not, I'm not picking that hill to die on, but I do want to state that the Bible uses the phrase in Christ way more than it talks about us inviting Jesus into our hearts. Why does that, why does that matter? Who cares, Mark? Well, 
The reason it matters is because if you receive Christ in faith, then your life is attached to his life. That's the really important part. It's his life that makes the difference. It's being in him that's the important part of the equation. Faith is participation in the life of Christ. Your story matters, but what matters more is if your story has become participation in Christ's story. Your body matters, but what matters more is your participation in Christ's body. Who you are matters, but what matters more is whether who you are has been subsumed into who Christ is. We have his spirit because we've been united in him. Receiving Christ here in our text is full acceptation of all the gospel of Christ. Full apprehension of everything that the apostles have taught these believers. This is what they've received. And And that stands in opposition to the false ideas and the false extras and the false traditions of men that are often the sort of false teaching in the New Testament. And what's really helpful right from the jump is the way Paul phrases this. Just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. The way Paul phrases that has direct implications. It's packed with meaning and implications for what and who the Colossians have received. And that means, and that means for what and who we have received as well. You received Christ Jesus, the Lord. The Lord. You didn't receive Christ Jesus, the religious guru. You didn't receive Christ Jesus, your leadership expert. You didn't receive Christ Jesus, the experienced and convincing moral teacher. You didn't receive Christ Jesus, your cheer squad or self-esteem coach or your activities booster. You didn't receive Christ Jesus, your homeboy or your BFF, someone who endorses all your choices and affirms all your decisions. You didn't receive Christ Jesus, the professor or the motivational speaker or your therapist. Just as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. That's significant. One theologian says it this way. Referring to Jesus as the Lord is not a mere title of respect applied to kings and masters, but to some degree a reference to Lord, kurios, which which is the usual Greek translation of Yahweh in the Greek Old Testament and was a word used by pagans for their own gods. This is thus a reference that includes identifying Jesus with Yahweh from the Old Testament. The emphasis is on confessing Christ as Yahweh so that he is identified with the unique God of the Old Testament scriptures. This Christ is the Messiah, God's anointed, Jesus of Nazareth, resurrected, and he's God of Is- he's the God of Israel's history. For Paul to confess that Jesus is Lord is to confess that he is Yahweh. There's no question here. Paul's not appealing to the teaching of a prophet. He's not appealing to the teaching of a person or a leader of a religious movement. He's saying, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior and God, walk in him like that. Walk in him and not in the advice that you get from influencers on Instagram. 
Or walk in him and not in the traditions maybe of your family of origin. Walk in him. Don't walk by your own flesh or feelings. Submit all those things to the Lord. Submit every attitude and thought and action to Christ, the Lord. And he shifts in this text to focus on three dimensions of what it means to walk in him. Therefore, because Because this is the Christ that you've received, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's over all rulers and authorities and powers in the universe. He's before all things and everything was made through him and everything was made for him. And in him, everything holds together. He's the mystery that's now revealed and on display. And in him are all the riches of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Him, 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 him. He's the point. He's the point. He's what matters. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord God Almighty that you've received and now walk in him like that. And the apostle walks us through a couple different ways or dimensions or descriptions that are modifying this phrase, walk in him. Walk in him means being rooted in him. It means being built up in him and And it aligns with or coincides with abounding in thanksgiving. The first two are a mixture of metaphors and the last one is both a result and an expression. (coughs) Excuse me. Be rooted in Christ. First, before we get there, the phrase walk in him, I just want to say a quick thing. The Bible uses the word walk in this way to mean Lead one's life. When you see that, you can think that. Lead one's life or live this way. Let your whole life be directed by this. Do all your living in orientation to the risen Christ. And if you do this, you'll demonstrate rootedness. If you you don't know what roots you this morning, if you don't know what grounds you, you can take a second and think about what really disrupts you. What flares up your frustration? What flares up your irritation? What flares up distress in your life or ruins your day or ramps up your anxiety? What is it? What is it? What values do you hold that when they get crossed or violated, it sends you reeling? Are you rooted in those ideas or those opinions or those good intentions or those good works? You see, I can't, I can't answer that question for anybody in this room, but you know, but it takes staring into the mirror of the scriptures and being honest with yourself and being honest with God. You know when someone violates your preferences and you can't roll with the punches. You can't adjust with a generous disposition. I know I have that in my life. I know I do that. Is it our success? Is it our financial stability? Or what the Bible refers to as the pride of life. The pride of life is something that roots many of the people in this room. The pride of life is being rooted in success or being rooted in owning the big house or the perfect yard, or the vacation home. The pride of life is being rooted by having successful and well put together kids. The pride of life is when you try to be rooted in a good reputation 
or by a promotion or by hitting the next level of influence on the social media scales. And all those things are good things in our life. In fact, all those things are gifts and blessings from God. But when they are what holds you together, are they, when, when they're what stabilizes you or root you, then you're setting yourself up for pure disappointment. Pride goes before the fall because pride can't be the root of anything. Sin can't make you strong or sturdy. It's shallow and flimsy and fake and fleeting. And the pride of life in our stuff or in our possessions is so easily toppled by losing everything in an instant, in the fire or the tornado or the storm. If you want to know what roots you, think about what makes you feel good and okay and what would send you off a cliff emotionally if you lost it. And the more you have in this life, the more opportunity for temptation there'll be. Don't let your good opinion of yourself be the thing that stabilizes you or your good works or your good reputation or good possessions be the thing that stabilizes you because in the storm, they won't do the trick. You'll be like, you'll be like giant trees that I see in different places in our city that look strong. They look tall and big with good healthy branches and leaves and their storm comes and they're blown over and then we find out that they were hollow the whole time and their roots didn't go down deep. Being rooted is about the foundations of your life and being built up is about continuing in growth. A friend of mine says it this way, if being rooted is about remaining, then being built up is about continuing. Walk in him. Be rooted there. Be anchored there. Get your point of reference there. Don't get it from anything else in your life. Through all your challenges, don't cut or sever the tether that you have to Christ. Walk it back to him every time in a straight line. Is he defining your spending? Is he defining the way that you talk? Is he defining your actions and behaviors and habits? And is he defining your trajectory as you look forward? Is he charting your course, your continuing, your plan for growth and development? Paul mixes metaphors all the time, and I love it. He should, because what Christ does in our lives is beyond all of these metaphors, be built up in Christ. He's moving from agriculture to a kind of structural or architectural metaphor here. You, person, be structured in a strong way in Christ. Let your attachment to Christ make you a sturdy person. Let your attachment to Christ make you structurally sound. Let your attachment to Christ give you structural integrity and strength. Because if you try to give that job to anything else or anyone else in your life, any other belief system or anything else that you've received, it won't work. It won't work. It can't bear that kind of weight. It's guaranteed to buckle on you under the pressure of your life. We all, we all have other things in our life that we've received. 
We have other traditions, other ideas, other philosophies. You have things in your life that you were taught or that you learned or that you've incorporated into how you think and feel and navigate the world just like the Colossians have as well. Remember, Paul's saying what he's saying in order to combat false teaching. And scholars have various opinions about what the nature of this false teaching is. But it's most likely that the nature of the teaching was some kind of additional requirement, right? Additional information, additional rules or rituals, additional to Christ that was being added to the gospel that these believers had been taught. And the truth is, is that we all have extra ideas in our lives. We all have ideas and practices that inform how we navigate the world. We have theories. We have a lot of theories about our own health. Should you eat sugar, for instance? Or should your kids not even hear the word sugar until they're 16? Should you do intermittent fasting? Should you drink raw milk? Should you use painkillers or just use essential oils? Or should you only eat beef, butter, bacon, and eggs for six months? It's funny But it's true. We have these extra things we use to navigate the world. As humans, we love to build our identity around what kinds of restaurants we like to eat at, or what kind of suburb we choose to live in, or what kinds of clothes we decide to wear, or what kinds of news we listen to, or books we read, or podcasts we listen to, we listen to, or talking heads we watch on the TV. We love to be built up by those things. We love to be stabilized and experience growth and knowledge and understanding of those things. And much of it's fine. Much of it's okay. But if the structural integrity of the core of your foundation, of your life, consists in your health food decisions or your health care decisions, it will not be strong enough to withstand the weight of this life. And we're too quick to say to Jesus, thanks, but I'll take it from here. We don't, we don't do that out loud. We'd never say it that way explicitly in front of anybody who could hear it. But we experience comfort and security necessary to navigating life. We experience that security in things other than Jesus. And those things actually are always trying to fight with you to get that seat that only Jesus deserves. We experience that security in other things. And when you received Christ, when you received Christ, let me ask this morning, did you negotiate with him? When you received salvation, did you haggle with God? Did you strike a deal or compromise? Did you come back with a counteroffer to what he was offering? Right? Did the clay tell the potter how to make you or how to save you? Or did you tell him what you wanted out of the arrangement? No, no, I didn't think so. When you received Christ, when he ran into the, build, the, the burning building of your life, did you say, awesome, now let me just grab a couple things? No. You surrendered. You surrendered to his call to the grace of God to rescue you and save you and claim you as his. 
You gave up on your own ideas and repented and believed God and took up your own cross and followed him. And the truth is, is that many of us receive God's hand for deliverance and then we arrogantly try to swat away his hand for continued repentance, growth, change, being built up in him. It's a real temptation to coast and forget where we came from. Forget what God's done for us. If we're honest with ourselves, we too easily say, thanks God, and I'll take it from here. And then we behave contrary to God's instruction, or we embrace our own feelings over God's word, or we demonstrate arrogant attitudes that completely disregard the scriptures, that completely ignore the teaching of Jesus, that completely ignore what the word of God says about truth, what it says about sin and forgiveness and how to live, and how to think about the world around us. And that kind of attitude isn't sturdy. (coughs) It's flimsy and wobbly. And when it's tested, it won't stand. It's a leaning, it's a leaning life, like like a Jenga tower that just needs one more piece to be pulled out before it's toppled over in complete destruction. Don't be rooted in anything else the way that you're rooted in Christ. Don't be built up by anything else the way that you're built up in Christ. Don't walk in him differently than you received him, adding these auxiliary ideas and traditions and ways of living that can't be a structural framework for you or for your life or for your soul. Don't try to walk in him differently than how you received him. And a mark of this, a mark of a rooted, built up, established in the faith kind of life is a life that is abounding in thanksgiving. When you're rooted, (coughs) excuse me, when you're rooted in Christ, when you're constantly being strengthened and built up in Christ, then it's only natural that gratitude would abound. Gratitude's a sign. Gratitude's a sign of maturity in the believer. And it's a sign, and ingratitude is a sign of immaturity. And you know that's true even with your own kids. Right? We teach our children, we we teach our children part of growing up is learning how to say thank you. And we do that because we want them to be thankful people, not because we want them to check off some sort of etiquette box. And this reality, the illustration, the description of abounding in thanksgiving has been the key to this text that has just put, that has just poked the finger of God right in my eye, that has pushed on raw spots in my heart all week. This word connotes a kind of spilling over, a kind of spilling out, a seepage, pouring into a cup of wine until it runs over the edges of the glass. And that presents us with a really wonderful and difficult, see if that helps. Bear with me. Fighting a cold. The idea of abounding in Thanksgiving is this cup running over. 
And what that did for me this, this week especially was I thought about if it isn't thankfulness, if it isn't gratitude that's spilling out of my heart and spilling out of my life, what is it? What is it? If not thankfulness in our lives, then what are the things in our lives that spill over? What else? What else in your life is spilling over? And could noticing what that thing is help you know, help you understand, help you identify a place in your life that you're rooted someplace other than Christ? Or you're experiencing being built up in something other than Christ in your life? Right now, real question, real time, ask yourself, what spills out of me? What spills out of me? What comes out? Is it yelling? Is it sarcasm with your wife? Is it disrespect towards your husband? Is it a harsh tone with your kids? Is it exasperation with your neighbor or your roommate or your coworker? What's spilling out of you that isn't conscious It isn't premeditated or thought through and probably is the exact opposite of the plan that you made on January 1st for your sanctification in 2023. What seeps out of you when you're not paying attention? Is it mindless babble or talking that just spills out and you don't have control over it? Just a lot of talking tends to spill out of us. The scriptures commend listening way more than talking. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Both talking and anger are things that tend to just bubble out. That's why we say he lost his temper because he had a grip on it and then it got out of his control. Or we describe words and saying, I put my foot in my mouth or you can't get the toothpaste back in the tube when it's spilled out. Does flattery just spill out of your mouth? Or do we say something stupid and then we're shocked at ourselves by what came out and then we say things like, I don't even know why I said that. It's not even that big of a deal. I don't even know why I lied about that. Or I don't even know why I exaggerated. The fact is, is that whatever's inside of our hearts is spilling out all the time. The human heart is built to seep What's really going on inside of us is never far underneath the surface. Just apply a little pressure and it tends to leak out. But whom did you ever meet that bursts or spills out with gratitude? And remaining in Christ and being built up and established in him warrants spilling forth with thanksgiving. Being complete in Christ requires gratitude and requires that we work to transform what is spilling forth out of us, but only by the power of the Holy Spirit. Does self-pity spill out of you? Does judgment or cynicism or deceit or insincerity, aggravation, anger, resentment, entitlement, all of that reminds me of immaturity of a petulant child 
And one mark of maturity is the mark of learning self-control about what is spilling out of us. And just as increased self-responsibility and self-control is a mark of maturity, so also another mark of spiritual maturity is cultivating genuine gratitude so we're not merely stopping ourselves from saying ugly, ungrateful, probably as an adult, embarrassing things. But thankfulness replaces thanklessness. Humble gratitude replaces entitlement. And a grateful heart displaces resentment and bitterness in our lives. And like I said before, I can't, I can't tell you what that is in your life. You have to look into the mirror of the living word of God. And you have to be honest with yourself about what you see. So we do well to put forth effort to see and relish the value of Christ and the value of our salvation such that it sparks a fire of gratitude and thankfulness. Because the problem is never that Jesus Christ hasn't done enough for us. The problem is that we don't grasp that easily. We don't get the full force of that easily. It takes work. Luke 18 tells a story of two different kinds of thankfulness, two different kinds of gratitude in the scripture. And I'm going to read that for us right now. Luke 18, two men went up into the temple to pray and one was a Pharisee and the other guy was a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing a far way off, beat his chest and said, have mercy on me, a sinful man. And I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So how have you received Christ? How have you received him? Is he your God, the Lord, the controlling reality of your life and not merely a religious merit badge or an intellectual accessory or an ingredient to your own self-help philosophy? Is he the ruling and reigning King Jesus, King of the universe and King of your universe? Is he the one that reached down and plucked you from the fire? And if you've received him that way, walk in him that way, not halfway, not half-hearted, not almost. Lead your life in him, just like your rescue and your salvation was completely dependent on him. And as we, as we close this morning, listen to this quote from Richard Lucas. Quote, to be bursting with thankfulness is a true witness of the spirit within us. For the voice of thanksgiving speaks without ceasing of the goodness of God. It claims nothing 
It marvels at his mercy. It is the language of joy just because it need look no further or longer to its own resources. It is an expression of dependence on another. It is the speech of the psalmist and is the natural tongue of the apostles. It's also heard on the lips of the weakest Christian on his knees. That will establish you. That will structure you and establish you and fill your heart to the brim with gratitude. And indeed, your heart will overflow with thanksgiving. Let's remember what Christ has done for us as we move to this last section of our service and take communion. The way we take communion at Redeemer Fellowship is we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cups are wine and the glassware is juice. We'll have two stations right in front of me, one in the balcony and then one further to the left here that is gluten-free and single serve. And we'll also have prayer ministers over here underneath the stained glass window who would love to pray for anybody about anything. At Redeemer, communion is offered to anybody here who puts all of their faith and trust and hope in Jesus Christ. If that's you, we'll invite you to come forward here in just a minute. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 11 as I continue. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Before, before you come forward for, for communion this morning, I invite you to do some internal reflection and ask the Spirit of God to help you identify what it is in your life that's seeping out, what it is in your life that spills forth, what it is that just gets out of your grip and demonstrates what's going on inside you. And I don't, I don't ever do that, and I don't do that now, to guilt anybody or shame anybody, but to offer the invitation of freedom from being oriented by those things and being oriented by the mind and spirit of Christ instead, instead. So would you join me as I pray and the servers come up and the musicians come back up? Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for revealing yourself as a father. Thank you that you're loving. Thank you that you're good. Thank you that you don't burst out with anger or frustration or impatience. Those things don't seep out of you. What seeps out of you is mercy and kindness and love and grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Christ Jesus, thank you for dying. Man, Holy Spirit, would you convict us? Would you transform us? Would you take the gospel, everything that Christ is, and would you 
plant that deeper in who we are this morning? Would you plant that deeper in what orients us? Would you help us be more honest with what we see when we look in the scriptures than what we are naturally able to do? And Holy Spirit, you have to do that. Would you reveal to us more sin, more weakness, more growth, more change, more formation that needs to be reformed from the way that we learn from different things in our lives, different traditions of men, different ways of growing up? Would you transform those and would you reveal places to us that we're clutching things that can't stabilize us, can't root us at all? Expose those in our hearts, I ask, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.